Ephesians chapter 1, I got a lot to say today, I'm going to jump right into it. Last week, uh, we began looking at the blessings of God, uh, and we, we looked at this, we, we, we just talked about how when you talk about the blessings of God, perspective is really important, uh, because we tend to focus on the physical when we talk about the blessings of God, um, and while God does bless us, indeed, physically, the most important blessings from God are spiritual blessings, uh, and these are the ones that, that we really want to focus in on. Why is that? Well, because your physical blessings that you receive from God, as much of a blessing as they are, and we don't discount them when we invite them, but if all we focus, is on, focus on is the physical blessings, well, they have an expiration date. They have a short shelf life, you know, um, That's why you never see a U-Haul behind a a, a hearse going to a funeral, because you can't take it with you. Uh, The Apostle Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He said, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Uh, Man, I love the things that Paul says. I really, you know, when you you think about heaven and who you really want to see in heaven, the Apostle Paul is high on my list. I really just want to be able to talk with him. Um, he, he has, you know, he, he, the way he articulates his thoughts and phrases and so on. Yes, the Bible is the inspired word of God and it's the Holy Spirit speaking through men, but he speaks through them in their, in their giftedness and through their personalities and you see that come out. And I love the things the apostle Paul has to say. Uh, with this thought, the psalmist said this, said the, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. The idea that, man, life is short. Again, the psalmist said in Psalm 89, remember how short my time is, for what futility have you created all the children of men? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? And then he adds this word, selah, which is a word that basically means you just stop and think about that for a while. As I like to say, you just take a walk with that thought right there. And, uh, you know, it is just something that we don't like to really dwell on, but it's those, that truth of the matter that, listen, the spiritual is indeed super important because the physical is temporal. It's temporary. And we're reminded of this over and over again. My father-in-law was telling me the story about one of his coworkers. He was in the construction industry, and uh, one of his one of, this man that he'd known for years, he fell off the first rung of a ladder, and he struck his head, and he died. I mean, we're talking 12 inches off the ground. How many of you hung Christmas lights this year, and you're up at the top of the ladder just shaking? And, you know, heights don't bug me so much. My neighbor can't stand them, so I always go on the ladder and do things for him. Um, But this guy, one step on the rung, he fell off and he died. And, you know, interestingly, (laughs) you uh, you know, later... My father-in-law is telling the story where there's, the, you know, a guy he worked with, he's driving by his house, and, and now, you know, this, this wife, well, she's remarried, and, uh, and there's the guy sitting out on the porch that she remarried, and he's just, you know, my father-in-law just sort of said in that moment, it just sort of became so real, everything that this man had worked for, here's this, uh, this other joker sitting on his porch just enjoying all of the fruits of his labor, you know, and here you have the, the physical and all the, the things that you invest in and focus on. Man, there's just, they just have a lifespan. 
And so Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians. He's reminding them of their spiritual blessings, their spiritual blessings that God has given to them. And last week, uh, we saw three blessings in the spiritual realm. Number one, he chose us. We saw the, the, the spiritual blessing that he predestined us to adoptions, adoption as sons. Thirdly, we looked at last week that he, God, made us accepted in the beloved. Now, I'm not going to go through all that in, in, by way of review. You can, you can go online and listen to the message. But we continue now in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul now adds a fourth blessing, and that is he has redeemed us by his blood. And we're going to dial into that this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we continue. Paul says, in him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, that word redemption is very key. If you want to circle it, uh, nearby you could write this. You could write, to liberate by a ransom. To liberate by a ransom, which obviously involves paying a price to secure freedom. That's what that word redemption means there. Now, the New Testament, it speaks of several different ways in which God has paid a price for us. The, the first example we have in the New Testament, I'll put on the screen for you, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, and here's what it says. It says, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, he's, when he says you were bought at a price there in 1 Corinthians, the, the, the word literally, that phrase literally means to purchase and to take away. To purchase and to take away. Now, I'm going to describe that idea this way. Um, when, when the bank, from time to time, will foreclose on a home, they take those homes, and what they do is they, they literally go down to the courthouse steps, and they auction those homes off. And, and so it's, it's a really surreal experience, if you've ever been there, um, that there's, there's groups of people that will actually bid on the home. And so they have, you know, the, the asking price that they start with. And, and all these people there, they, they have to, you know, figure out, you know, okay, what is this home that's being offered for sale? They have to do all sorts of title research and stuff to make sure that it's got a clean title and so on. And they got to make sure that everything's just right. And then what happens is these investors who are there to, 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 to bid on the homes, uh, they basically are purchasing and taking away uh, these homes from the bank's inventory. And, and uh, it, it's, it's an amazing thing that, they, you know, there they are, they're bidding and all, and, and, and of course, you, you, they deal on a cash basis. So, you know, it's not like you or I could go down and say, oh, I'm going to pick up a great deal at the courthouse steps. Well, yeah, you can if you got three or $400,000 burning a hole in your pocket, then you can go down there and you, you have your, you know, cashier's check and you, you can, uh, can purchase that thing. And what these guys are doing is they're going down, they have these, these you know, the... It's, it's that old adage, you know, those that have money are the ones that make money, and that's what's going on. And so these guys, they, they have the resources, um, and, uh, and so they go down, which, by the way, just keeping in mind, verse 7, you know, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, of sins, according to, and here it, it is, the riches of his grace. God has the resources 
to redeem us. He's, you know, he's got that, you know, the, the, that equivalent of that example of the guy that goes down to buy the house has got the cashier's check for 300 grand. He's got the riches to be able to, to redeem this property. And so the first way that the New Testament speaks of God paying a price for us, of God redeeming us, uh, is, is this example in 1 Corinthians. And the idea there is, hey, you're going to purchase it and you're going to take it away. And of course, these guys are purchasing it and they're taking it away to go and flip it. That's what they do. They buy a house and then they threw, put a few thousand bucks into it to, to fix it up. And then they put it back on the market and they, and they make a profit. Uh, and so this is, this is what they do. Now, that's, that's one way that the Bible speaks of God redeeming us in very much, very similar fashion. You know, going up, I've got the resources, I'm redeeming this property. But another way that the Bible speaks of God paying a price for us, uh, you see it in Galatians chapter 3, and, and it's where God purchases and takes us away, but he takes us away for himself. He's not taking us away, uh, you know, the, the, the one example is, you know, purchasing as an investment, but, but this is, hey, he's, he's purchasing us not to flip us, <laughs> but to keep us for himself, uh, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us, there's the word, uh, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so God has redeemed us, he's, and, and he's redeemed us, according to Galatians 3.13, to buy out of the market for himself. That's a beautiful thing when you think about it, that God has purchased you. Out of the riches of his grace, he's bought you. And basically, if you have that, that auction in mind where everybody, you know, might maybe bidding on a property, you know, the guy that's buying the property for himself, well, he, he ain't, you know, I'm, I'm not buying that to flip it. I'm buying that because I want that for me. And God has done that with you. He's redeemed you. He's redeemed me because he wants you for himself. And so this is beautiful picture where we belong to him, and he's redeemed us in that way. Now, the third Greek word for redemption, and the third example we have in the New Testament, is in our text today, Ephesians 1, 7. And this word for redemption literally means, as I said, to liberate by paying a ransom. Uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus came expressly to redeem us. Mark 10, 45, as I was talking about earlier today during the announcements. The Son of Man came not to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the, the idea is Jesus came to ransom us. And, and the reason, obviously, obviously, is because we were all, every one of us at one time, captives to sin. We were all at one time captives to sin, slaves to sin. Jesus talks about this in, in John chapter 8. Um, and um, you know what? Let's turn over there just real quick. I was going to just sort of paraphrase it for you, but, but I want to sort of go off on a rabbit trail here with you briefly. So we might as well have you in the same text that I'm going to go off on. John chapter 8. Interesting thing happening here in John chapter 8. We'll just read it. I won't even tell you the story. Um, but we'll pick it up, uh, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And uh, I don't know what it says in your Bible over the, uh, you know, how the Bible is broken down into different sections and the, the, you know, the authors of the Bible put these little, you know, titles up above certain sections. Up above my, this section in my Bible, it says, the truth shall make you free. 
Uh, interesting concept, especially this week. Uh, and uh, a lot of debate about the truth this week. John chapter 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. And there's our big idea for this idea of Jesus ransoming us. We were all at one time enslaved to sin. And Jesus came to pay the ransom to buy us back from that that we were enslaved to. All right, and so Jesus says, "You are, you know, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin." Verse thirty-five, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus continues, verse thirty-seven. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Now, what father is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about Satan. He's basically saying, listen, I'm speaking what my father in heaven has told me to speak. The words that I'm speaking are from heaven, from God the Father. Now, you're doing what has been modeled to you by your father, Satan, right? How... Is, is that going to win Jesus man of the year with these guys? Are they going to have the warm and fuzzies from Jesus talking here to them? No, he's, but he's telling them the truth. And so he goes on, verse 39, they answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God... Does that, I don't know, does that sound familiar to you at all? You know, have you been watching the news? Have you been, you know, seeing, you know, what's, what's going on in the news? A man who just speaks, you know, the truth of God, and what's the reaction? You seek to kill me. Uh, and he says, uh, 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 but now you seek to kill me, verse 40, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham, did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, we were not born of fornication, we have one Father, God. Now this is a dig at Jesus Christ because he was born of a virgin. And this was the, the running thing that people accused Mary of, of giving birth to an illegitimate child. They, Jesus was perceived by his detractors as one who was conceived out of wedlock in sin between Mary and Joseph. And so they were giving this dig at Jesus saying, hey, you're illegitimate, you know, and, uh, and you, that's the way you were born. You were born of fornication, not us. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, uh, for I proceed forth uh, and, um, yeah, I'm sorry, I proceeded forth and came from God, uh, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Uh, why, verse 43, do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. 
he goes on, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. I like one translation says he's speaking his own native tongue. When the, you know, when, when, when the enemy talks, he's, he's the father of lies, the Bible says, and that's his native tongue. He says, for he is a liar and the father of it. Verse 45, Jesus continues, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Uh, which of you convicts me of, of sin? And I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God, hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. This is Jesus speaking. Now, what do you think the logical end of this conversation is? Let's just cut to the chase. Skip down to verse 59. And then they took up stones to throw at him, right? Jesus hides himself. He conceals himself. He walks through in their midst. That's the paraphrase of the rest of the verse there. This is how he gets out of it. Now, what's the big idea here? What's going on? Well, Jesus is speaking the truth to a group of people, and they don't like it. And they're not going to receive the truth. And why aren't they going to receive the truth. Well, Jesus has started from that premise saying you ain't going to receive it because you are slaves to sin. And the idea is that we were all at one time enslaved to sin. Now, I said that this is very interesting because you read this, it ties right into the issue of why Jesus had to ransom us in the first place because we were all enslaved to sin and we needed someone to pay the ransom, to pay the penalty for our sin that we could not afford. We didn't have a check big enough to go down to the auction and redeem ourselves. We had to be redeemed by that one who uh, the Bible tells us, uh, according to the riches of his grace, he's the only one that could redeem us. Now, Jesus, in telling this story, he just sheds light on, you know, and again, I'm sort of on a, a, a rabbit trail of sorts here, um, Kind of, kind of not. But the, the idea here is as we watch the news and we see everything that's going on this week with the whole Duck Dynasty controversy, this, you know, conversation that Jesus is having, it really is not unlike sort of the conversation that's been, having, that's been had on the national level where you've got a guy who, you know, basically he's, he's, he's paraphrasing the Bible, now, he said some coarse things, which are just kind of consistent with, you know, his character and his nature, just to who he is. And, and by, I would tell you also, as one who speaks for a living and, and takes a lot of time to prepare what I'm going to say, when you speak for a living, from time to time, you're going to say things that, that ruffle people the wrong way. But, you know, then again, the man's in good company because Jesus, in John chapter 8, as we just read, he said some things that ruffled people the wrong way too. And they picked up stones and they wanted to stone him, just like they want to stone, you know, Phil Robertson and what's going on with him. Now, where do we find the balance in all this? Because I see what's going on and I see nationally people are outraged at everything that's going on and, you know, and oh, he should have said this differently. You know what? Great. In hindsight, which one of us can't look back and go, I wish I would have phrased that just a little bit differently. But really, the nugget here of truth is the, the issue that people have, I'll tell you, it's not with Phil Robertson. The issue that's causing the national outrage is the Word of God. Super controversial, and we have to, as Christians, figure out, what am I going to do? How, you know, how do I, if I'm called to defend my faith in, in, in a society that is trying to 
really force its agenda. It's been forced everyone to accept its agenda. How do we as Christians stand strong and how do we stand obediently in our faith? And, and I think certainly wisdom is indicated. And I'll tell you what else I think. I think that Christians need to stop fighting with one another. I think we need to close ranks a little bit on this issue. I think we need to you know, quit arguing so much. And we need to start standing obediently with the Lord. Now, I hear all the arguments about what's going on and about, oh, you know, you're heartless and you're legalistic and you're not loving and all. And I think the balance here is found in 2 Timothy, and, it's, and this, is, this is helpful for, you know, sort of this rabbit trail and it also brings us right back on track for the section of uh, Scripture that we're in. I'm put it on the screen for you. Paul's talking to Timothy, and here's what he says. He says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And I think what we have here in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26, is a great prescription for us. We need to know as Christians, what course should I take? And, and so I, I think it's important to consider this. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. You know, don't quarrel, be gentle. But he says, able to teach, and that's the bookend there, guys. You have to be able to teach. You have to be able to say, you know, the, the whole bit of Christian love doesn't mean you take your position and you force me to be quiet and, 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 I, and I, just, I just love you, love you, love you. Okay, well, you can love somebody straight to hell. You can love someone straight to hell. So it's incumbent upon us to see these people as Jesus sees these people. And this is my heart on this issue and I want you to hear me. Jesus loves everyone. He loves the entire world. He loves the adulterer, and he loves the homosexual. And, 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 and there are, and you know, people have from time to time accused Christians of, you know, you've got this one string or this one drum that you're going to beat. You're going to talk about homosexuality like it's the only sin. No, and I've got a theory about that. I think the reason why we keep coming back to homosexuality is because we don't have an adulterer's, uh, you know, group that's pushing its agenda, and, and you know, we don't have a, a, a drunkard's group pushing its agenda, agenda and pushing for acceptance. But the reason why we have a tendency to focus on the homosexual issue is because we have groups that are pushing for acceptance of that lifestyle. Well, the Bible clearly says that that lifestyle is sin. And so the fact that I'm just focusing on this issue, it's not so much just to say, hey, let's just talk about this one issue of sin that, that we can talk about. It's to say, look, this is, this is the truth of God's word. This is the issue that happens to be at hand. And, and how, do we, how do we as Christians respond to this? Well, we start out the gate by saying, you know what? We were all once enslaved to sin, every last one of us. And God set us free through his, the riches of his grace and his mercy. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in my place for my sin. And by the grace of God, I have, I have entered into a relationship with him, and I know him, and I can be known by him, and I'm grateful for that. And so I need to understand that the same grace that God has extended to me, he wants to extend to everybody. And so the issue at hand here, we're talking about homosexuality. God loves the homosexual, and so must we. How do we love them? Well, 
don't quarrel, be gentle, but able to teach. We have to be able to engage them and be able to say, listen, this is what the Bible says, and, and we have to, you have to, you know, hear me out on this. Now, patient, that's pretty appropriate place for that to be right about now because, hey, gentle and not quarreling, able to teach, oh, this is going to be long. This is going to be what, you know, a long discussion. Yeah, patient, in humility, correcting, there you go, there's more issue, correcting those who are in opposition. We need as Christians to be able to say, according to the Bible, what you're saying is not true. And we need to be able to correct them. And why? If perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses. And this is what you need to hear. This is what you need to hear. So often as Christians, we want to put everybody in, in, in the, you know, hey, here's what God's word says. And we want to play the God squad and run around and be able to, to, to knock everybody down who's not living according to God's standard. What we need to understand is it's hard enough for Christians to act like Christians It's impossible for non-Christians to act like Christians. And so when we see non-Christians living in their non-Christian life, living out their non-Christian deeds, we can't look at them through the Christian filter and say, you know, oh, look at, you know, that and and, and be outraged. No, we have to look at them through this filter that, that Paul tells Timothy here, they need to come to their senses, because they, the, the things of the Spirit are foolishness to them, as Paul would tell the Corinthians. They don't get it. They don't see it. They don't come to their senses. Why? Because they're ensnared by the devil, and that's what Paul says. Escape the snare of the devil, having been cap- taken captive to do his will. Now, let's talk about a snare. Interesting thing about a snare, if you've ever watched any sort of survival show or any sort of thing, or if you've ever done any sort of hunting or trapping on yourself, by nature, how does a snare work? Well, it's pretty fast. That's the thing. You set it up to catch your prey, and it, and it just, before you know it, man, suddenly they're, 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 they're entrapped. And that's the way Satan works. That's the way sin works in this world, is that the enemy, man, sets these snares in our lives, and we go on our merry way, and, you know, you're setting up a snare. What do you have to do? Well, you have to be able to say, where's my prey, and what are his patterns, and what are his paths, and I need to put the snare right in his path, so the enemy is a student of you. He He knows how you live. He knows your patterns. He knows your weaknesses. And he sets up that snare in the area of your weakness. And before you know it, you're ensnared. You're trapped. And now you've been placed in this position of being enslaved by the enemy. And you've been, as Paul concludes, taken captive by him to do his will. This is the anatomy of sin. That's how sin works. Turn to 1 Peter 5, verse 8. First Peter 5, verse 8, and it says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Be sober and be vigilant, because your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, and he's looking for whom he can devour. Um, several years ago, right the same time when we were planting this church, uh, Brenda and I were walking be- behind our house, uh, and, uh, and I've told this story before, so it may sound familiar to you, but we're walking behind our house, and all of a sudden, my wife stops dead in her tracks, and she's like, is that a mountain lion? 
And I look, and there on the hillside, about, you know, 30 feet from us, is a mountain lion. And he's, and it's a weird thing. He's just kind of looking down. He's just sort of licking. He's like oblivious to us. And I, so I, at first, I mean, I know my wife, so I, I lied to her. I'm like, no, it's not a mountain lion. It's a, it, it, it's a, it's a bobcat. She goes, that's not a bobcat. That's a mountain lion. I'm like, yeah, babe, that's a mountain lion. She goes, oh, you know, she's puddle right there. She's sta- She's about to collapse kind of thing. And, I, and I'm like, honey, honey, look, he doesn't even see us. He's busy eating the last guy that walked by here. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't even know we're here. You know, and she just, she won't listen to me. She's freaking out. So, you know, finally I, I get her out of there. I'm like, just, you keep it cool. Just keep walking. Let's get out of here. So we walk. Well, I wanted to go back and check it out. So I went and I, and I got my dog, my golden retriever, you know, thinking that, you know, the lion will go after her, you know, and, and all. Um, so I went back looking for the, for the mountain lion because I wanted to see it. It was long gone. Couldn't find it. But I'll tell you, just when I didn't know that the lion was there, my wife and I, we were just walking along. You know, and I, my walk was decidedly different than when I did know the mountain lion was there. Man, when I went back, every little noise, I'm stopping, I'm freaking out. My dog stops, the hair on the back of her neck is like straight up. I don't know if she's reacting to me or if she's actually seeing him. I'm freaking out. And I never got down to where the lion actually was because I was too freaked out. I turned around and I came back. Now, that all illustrates this point that Peter's making because he basically says, look, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, he precedes that by saying, be sober and be vigilant. You know, and, and you think about this, you know, when you think about uh, sobriety, you know, you, you have, there's all sorts of things. And when we talk about, hey, being sober, you think of alcohol, but there's all sorts of stuff that, that you can be, you know, intoxicated by, you know, lust and idols and, and, and pride and fame and fortune. There's all sorts of stuff that can intoxicate us. And so, you know, this is the idea. You need to be sober. You need to not be, you know, living your life for the things that intoxicate you and and blur you to the fact that there's an enemy that's seeking to destroy you. And and we're going to get to this in Ephesians chapter 5, but but this is, you know, when when, uh, Peter is telling us to to be sober and be vigilant, that the enemy prowls around or he walks around like a roaring lion. If he's walking like a roaring lion, if he's walking in in a very... In methodical way, you ever watch a lion seek its prey, they walk with very deliberate steps. So if they're going to walk that way, then it's incumbent upon us to be very mindful about how we walk, right? Doesn't that stand to reason? The way I walked with my dog back into the area, very purposeful because I'm looking for this mountain lion, you know? And this is the idea. And this is where we're getting to in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul's going to say, see then that you walk circumspectly, with your head on a swivel, that's what that means, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. That's the idea here, guys. The days are evil. We live in evil times, and we need to be mindful of the fact that the enemy wants to destroy us. And we've been ensnared by the devil to do his will, and this is how he does it. And, 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 and Paul, again, writing to the Galatians, uh, he, he confronted them for, for being influenced to trust in their different works. He said this, he says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And, you know, when you, when you cut into a slice of bread, and I've used this illustration a number of times because it, it, it fits, I just had, you know, a, a piece of bread this morning. 
and toasted. And, you know, the best kind of bread is the one that's got all of the nooks and crannies to hold all of the butter as it melts in there, right? And, and those nooks and crannies come from yeast bubbles that, that rise, you know, when the dough rises, it's just that yeast that works its way through. Well, what is yeast bubbles? It's gas that's released when the dough is rotting, right? That doesn't sound so appetizing. It tastes fantastic. What a perfect picture of sin. It's rotten to the core, but it tastes wonderful, you know? And so that is this picture. And, and, and what, what Paul is telling the Galatians is a little sin is like a little yeast, and it gets in, and it just sort of works its way through. And before you know it, you're rotten through and through. And, and so this is, this is the issue. And again, bread, another perfect picture of sin because, and by the way, my fantasy is like to drive a bread truck in my retirement, you know? <laughs> That's just like fantastic because, you know, you're surrounded by bread all day long and what's the worst that can happen? You drop the bread on the ground. Oh, drop the bread. Let's bake more bread. You know, that's the worst thing that can happen. You know, that and a cup of coffee and I'm good. If I get hit by a truck and I wake up and I, got, and I smell coffee and bread, I will know I'm in heaven. I mean, that's, one, that's my idea of just perfection right there. And so this, but bread is the perfect picture of sin because what happens is the yeast is working its way through the dough but it's, and it's rotting the dough, but the ro- dough hasn't completely rotted yet. It's just in that beginning process and that's the way sin is in our lives. In the very beginning, it looks so enticing and it's so wonderful and then the next thing you know... Man, you've eaten it all. You put on 30 pounds. You're like, you know, high blood pressure, just, just a whole whatever it is. I mean, this is like a great picture of sin. And so this is what Paul is saying, that a little sin is like a little yeast, and it gets into your life, and before you know it, it's completely permeated. Jesus is saying, listen, man, what happens is you become enslaved to sin. And, and so, so this is here, what we're going through, what we're looking at, man, this idea that Jesus has ransomed us, he's come to set us free from this enslavement that we're in. And so that's the idea. The world is filled with things that can intoxicate us and blur us to God. Now, Peter says as well, as we're here in this, looking at uh, 1 Peter 5.8, that, that not only do we need to be sober, we need to be vigilant. And again, this idea of vigilance is just we got to be really careful, man, with, with how we're attentive and how we're watchful. Um, James, in, in James chapter 1, I'll put the scripture on the screen for you. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Uh, that word enticed literally means to catch by bait. That's what that means. Really great picture there. And he's, James continues, says, Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now you think about catching by bait. And this goes back to what I'm talking about, about Satan being a student of you. He knows exactly how you tick. And, and the issue is when you go fishing and you use different bait, well, that's just it. You use different bait to catch different fish, right? I remember, you know, we'll go out. I take my son out, you know, fishing on my boat. And, and we're going to go fishing for, for, for halibut. And, and so what you do when you fish for halibut, basically, is you put a weight on the very end of your line. And then about 12 inches up or so, that's where you put a little leader. And you put the hook there and you put the bait on, on that hook. You know, and ideally, you got a couple of hooks. You, put, you know, you take an anchovy, a live one, and you hook him through so that, you know, he's kind of, you know, wiggling there as you drop this thing down. Halibut love it. They go after it. So we're fishing for 
halibut. That's how you catch halibut. Well, the halibut aren't biting. So what are we going to do? Well, you know what? There's all kinds of, you know, kelp beds around, and there's lots of calico bass that's, that are there in the, the kelp bed. So let's go, you know, work on, go after a different prey. Well, I can't use the same rig to go after the calico bass because they're not at the bottom. They're up at the top. And they don't go after, you know, the anchovy hook that way. They go after the lure that you're, you know, pulling through. And so you change up your bait. This is what Satan does with us. He changes up the bait. He knows just how to, to entice you to sin. And he's, he's that crafty predator. And all of us at some point, and this is, this is what I want you to hear. All of us at some point were hooked. And some of you still are. And what Paul tells Timothy back in that that scripture in 2 Timothy is that, man, the enemy is taken captive. He's ensnared some people to do his will. And what you guys need to hear today, because we're here in this section, God has redeemed us. He's ransomed us. There's freedom in Christ. There's freedom in Christ. Some of you today, you're, you're there and you've been ensnared. You've been hooked. And what you need to hear is that there's freedom in Christ. And what I want to tell you is that at the end of the message, I'm going to give you an opportunity just to cry out to him. You can be saved today. You can receive the, 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 the ransom that Jesus has paid for you. And you can receive the benefit and be set free today. You can. You can cry out to the Lord and he'll receive you. He loves you. He loves you. And he wants to know you. I'll give you that invitation today. Now, for many of you, you're saying, I get it. I got it. I understand. Pastor Ted, I understand that, that there's an enemy that's after me. I understand that, you know, that, he's, that he's going after me. I understand that there's freedom in Christ. And I understand that I'm ransomed. Not so fast. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We begin in verse 3, Galatians 4, 3. Paul says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, and we're going to look at this when we get to verse 10 of Ephesians uh, chapter 1, uh, where he talks about just that the fullness of time, that right time. Um, we'll come back to that. But at any rate, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. There's that word, redemption. Um, that we might receive the adoptions, the adoption as sons, which we looked at last week. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. That's an intimate term. That means when, when you receive the salvation that the Lord has purchased for you, your relationship with God is an intimate one where you come to him as you might come to, you know, a heavenly father. And for many of you, as we talked about last week, that, that father relationship is tricky for you because you, you, you haven't had a healthy relationship with your father. But, but this is one, for those of you that have had a healthy relationship with your father, this comes through in, in the, the beauty that it's intended. That, that when you come to a father, a good father loves you. Jesus said, what father among you, if you asked for bread, is going to give you a stone? 
If you ask for a piece of bread, he's going to give you a scorpion or a snake. Some of you had fathers that would kind of do, you know, horrible things like that. But a good father, he wants to take care of his kids. He wants to bless his kids. That's the picture here that we can have that intimate, Abba, Father, I can come to my dad. I can ask him for anything, and he wants to give it to me. He wants to bless me. Verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, an heir of God through Christ. Verse 8, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. You say, okay, yeah, that just proves my point. I get it. I got it. We've been ransomed. You're just, you're, you're sawing sawdust. Here's what I want you to hear. Verse 9, but now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. See that word elements right there? You might, you might want to circle that word. Nearby you could write this. You could write to walk in a row or a rank. It's a Greek word. It means stoihia, right? Okay, or that's how you pronounce it, stoihia. Here's what it means. It means to walk in a row or a rank. And here's the idea. The idea is there's any first thing that the others align themselves with it and take their marching order from it. And so what Paul is saying is you've got these beggarly elements, these earthly elements, these sinful desires that you put first in your life and you take your marching orders from that. That's what he's saying here. And and so my question for you is who do you take your marching orders from? You say, I'm saved, I've been ransomed by the Lord, great. Do you fall into what Paul warned here, these Galatians in verse 9, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements of this world that you take your marching orders from? Hey, just, just right now here in your chair, just between you and God, would you listen to the Holy Spirit as he convicts you in your heart saying, listen, You're taking your marching orders from this or from that or this other thing. What are you taking your marching orders from? Are you taking your marching orders from pharmaceuticals? Are you taking your marching orders from, from, from alcohol, from drugs, from pornography? Are you taking your marching orders from your self centeredness and, and hey, the world all revolves around me and everybody needs to serve me? Are you taking your marching orders from materialism? Are you taking your marching orders from your ambitions, from, hey, this is my plan for my life? Are you taking your marching orders from the Lord? See, that's, a, that's an incredible question. And what we have here is we've got this, this dual nature of redemption because God has redeemed you. But we looked at last week and we're talking about, okay, so is it that God has redeemed me? Is it that, 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 that I got saved? Or is it that I gave my life to the Lord? What is it? Where, what, how do we work this issue out? God has redeemed you. God chooses you, but you have to choose him as well. Listen to this, Romans 6.16 says this, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you could choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. See, there, 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 is a, there is a both and. We need to surrender the Lord and we need to receive that redemption that he's purchased for us, but we've got to cooperate with him and walk in obedience with him. We have to choose, what am I going to obey? Who are you obeying? Who are you taking your marching orders from? 
<clears throat> so we come back to Ephesians chapter 1, and we look again at verse 7, and it says, in him we have redemption. Hey, he's ransomed us, right? And, and, and the idea, you don't have to be a slave to sin or take your marching orders from the world because he has redeemed you. How? Through his blood. He is, in him we have redemption through his blood. Listen, Romans 5, 6 tells us this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. And what I want you to hear this morning is the price for your redemption was his blood shed on the cross. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not your good works, not your good thoughts, not your good intentions, not even, hey, I believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, great. Does that reflect in how you live out your life? Because the Bible says that even the demons believe and tremble. But it says that in the context of what is the, how do you live your life? I mean, do you believe, do you really believe that? Does that change the way that you live your life? Or do you just believe it in an academic sense? Because it's his blood that's going to save you. It's only his death in our place by his blood. I want you to listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's, it's mind-blowing. He said, observe, it is not redemption through his power. It's through his blood. It's not redemption through his love. It's through his blood. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And I want to close with this thought. Because there are some of you that are here and you're thinking, I know all this stuff. It's simplistic. It's profound. Because in three days, we're going to celebrate Christmas, the birth of our Messiah. And you know, the image that we have, and it's a right one, it's the, it's the, the, the beauty of Christmas is, is the babe in the manger, right? And, it, and it's this sweet, peaceful scene that Jesus Christ came as a man. And it is true. It's, it's beautiful. It's awesome. I don't want to take any of that away. But I want to focus you in light of this message. Because he has ransomed you. But folks, he ransomed you by his blood. And the Messiah came. That baby came to die for you and me. He came to shed his blood. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you and for me. Now, the Gospels spare us many details of, of the horrors of what it meant for Jesus to, to sacrifice himself and for his blood that was shed, but the historians provide a vivid description. I'll be as, as tactful as I can, but I want you to hear this. Crucifixion was invented by the Persian. It was Persians, and it was perfected, if you can say that in a perverted way, by the Romans. And physiologically, here's what the crucifixion did. It basically is a slow suffocation device to kill you. And <coughs> they start by nailing you to the cross, and they nail the nails through the median nerves at the, at the base of the palms. 
Now, your median nerve, if you want to be intimately acquainted with it, think about the time when you really nailed your elbow on something and the fire that went through your hand. And where does it end up? It ends up right at the palm. You can feel it right now in your mind where it ends up right in your palm and it burns so intensely. That's the median nerve. And so the the Romans, they would put the, the, the nail right through the median nerve at the base of the hand. And then what would happen is as it caused you to be stretched out and your diaphragm to be stretched out. And so that makes it impossible for you to take a breath when your diaphragm is stretched out. So what do you do? Well, you have to unstretch it out, which means that you have to pull yourself up. So for every breath, you've got to nail that, you know, this is the feeling. You know, imagine if every time you had to take your breath, you had to nail your elbow on something. That's crucifixion. For every breath, that's what you do. For every breath. Now, I want you to think about this. For you to speak... What's required? That you have breath in your lungs. And Jesus spoke from the cross, didn't he? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What was necessary for him to say that? To pull on that median nerve, to take a breath, to be able to speak those words. Take a walk with that this week. God loves you so much that he would go through such excruciating pain. And that's where excruciating comes from. The word excruciating means out of the cross. We get the very definition of horrible pain from the cross that Jesus Christ went to. He was born on Christmas to die in your place for your sins. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I could go on and on, and I'm going to spare you the the, the gory, graphic, horrible details. But they're gory and graphic. What I want you to see, and what I want to close on is this. That that gory, graphic, awful, bloodshed necessity for your ransom, that's the price he paid. It's because of your sin because of mine. Charles Finney said this. He says, it's a simple thing to say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. It's quite another thing to say that Jesus died for my sins. It's a shocking thought that we can be as indifferent as Pilate, who washed his hands of Jesus, as scheming as Caiaphas, who missed Jesus in his religion, as callous as the soldiers who beat Jesus, as ruthless as the mob who called for the death of Jesus, or as cowardly as the disciples who ran away from Jesus. But it wasn't just them. It was I who nailed Jesus to the tree. You are blessed with an incredible spiritual blessing. Because in Jesus you have redemption. He's redeemed you. He's ransomed you by his blood. And what did that affect? Paul says, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We have reason to celebrate Christmas. We have reason to celebrate what God has done for us because he loves us with an incredible love. He shed his blood for you.